Hi there, and welcome to the very first episode of Same, Same, But Different. I'm your host, Brittany Washington, and I thank you for joining. When I was in the seventh grade, I had a frenemy, Ab. He was the most annoying seventh grader. He made it clear to me, my friends, and everyone in the middle school cafeteria that he did not like me. But of course, what he actually meant was that he did like me, and I liked him. And like many a preteen drama goes, we started a romance. And it lasted through high school, but eventually dissolved, as many teen romances do. But what came next was unexpected and the most wonderful part of all. We became best friends. We went to college together. We experienced the highs, the lows, and all the things in between over the last nearly 20 years. And though Ab really drives me nuts sometimes, one of my absolutely favorite things about him is his willingness to experience new things, to say yes to what he wants, and to seek adventure. Right after college, he accepted a year-long fellowship to teach English in Indonesia, and, of course, ended up staying for five. And through his journeys, he learned so much. He evolved, and he picked up some things that stuck with him including the expression, same, same, but different. The expression stuck with him so much so that last week when I asked him, what should I name this podcast I'm creating about equity? He replied, call it same, same, different. Same, same, different. I kind of love that. Tell me, where'd you get it? And Ab, in true form, sent a poetic piece to give context. He said, the phrase coined in the Southeast Asian banana pancake circuit highlights a merging of perspectives, an attempt by people who speak different languages and live differently to recognize what they're seeing, what they're haggling over, and what they want is the same and also not the same. And I think it's kind of perfect. Especially when reflecting on the language we have around equity and how equity and equality are often conflated and how when we don't have common language and definitions to describe our experiences, the society and the systems we live within, we can be in conversation but talking about different things. In this podcast, we're going to talk with folks, with organizations, and with communities on their own journeys toward equity and belonging. We'll infuse arts and culture and explore what it means to get closer to ancestral wisdom, to bodily knowledge, and to respecting other ways of knowing. 
will deconstruct isms and get real about what is possible now and when structural oppression and violence can no longer work their wicked ways on our lives. I invite you to engage, to dream, to question, and to act. Again, welcome. I hope you stick around. We'll begin the series at my home organization, Miriam's Kitchen. Miriam's is a Washington DC based organization whose mission it is to end chronic homelessness. Our nonprofit staff is a bit over 50 deep and we work across advocacy, outreach, social services, meals, development, SOAR, permanent supportive housing, and performance management to make the mission happen. I started at Miriam's in 2014 as a senior art therapist, and in 2016, joined a small group of cross-departmental staff to start the organization's first racial equity working group. It was an initiative born out of our diversity circle, informed when staff voted that we should take a serious look at race and its role in homelessness. Over the following three years, we led a grassroots organizing strategy to help staff and leadership understand the link between racism and homelessness and to integrate a racial equity lens throughout our programs, practices, policies, and culture. And we had a lot of success. We set goals for equitable hiring practices and implemented them, including increasing staff diversity and blinding resumes for applications, we engaged in staff education and training around anti-racism. Staff spoke about racial equity at national conferences in the sector. We held racial caucus groups and our leadership spoke publicly about racism and homelessness. One of my all-time favorite things ever was that we took our guests and clients to see Black Panther and engaged in discussion about the importance of counter-stereotypic imagery component of confronting implicit bias. We were floored when an anonymous staff survey revealed that 90% of staff believe that confronting racism as a causal factor of homelessness was critical to achieving our mission. Finally, our biggest win so far came when we successfully advocated for the funding of a part-time racial equity and inclusion manager, the position I currently occupy. And even with so much success, there were and are very real challenges. Throughout the lifetime of our racial equity group, there was low participation from people of color and plenty of staff burnout among the people who did participate. We had no policy to address staff grievances when they happened. There was little to no accountability for the work that we've done and now that we had this big win, the biggest elephant in the room became, now what? We thought about what have we done wrong and how do we get unstuck?
So, in an effort to find out, I leaned into my relationships. I have a good friend, Nina, who urged me to consider that equity is around us all the time and therefore is discoverable. It's in nature, it's in our bodies, and we have to trust that knowing and look beyond the boxes we are taught to live in. Together, the Racial Equity Working Group explored that question, where equity exists in nature, what we might learn from it, and how we might incorporate those lessons. We then created a huge timeline where we dreamed about the goals we could pursue over the next three years. Everything from improve our employed time off to speak at national conferences to think about an equitable pay scale. From these activities, a potential work plan was born. I'll spend the rest of the episode detailing that plan. And I'll do so right after this break. The proposed work plan for the upcoming years is packed, and it felt most manageable to break it down into three major sections. First, the values, culture, and custom that guide us. Second, the five areas of focus for reframing our racial equity foundation. And third, the strategy for actually doing the work or what is often and admittedly inaccessibly called operationalizing equity. You still with me? Good. First up, let's talk values. A good friend once told me, when you're feeling stuck, return to your values and align. In that vein, it felt important to reaffirm our group values, to reflect on the culture we hope to create and to commit our behaviors or customs to this cause. As far as values, we had learned that it's important to value communication, authenticity, to be willing to be courageous enough to be vulnerable, to work on behalf of the communal good, to value work itself and not just theory or talk, and to embrace evolution and know that the work will change. For our culture, we hope to be relationship-oriented, to always be in pursuit of equity, to think critically about inclusion and to go the lengths it requires, to be committed to not just learning, but also to action, to not forget resilience and to center joy, to make room for emotional depth, to stand in constructive tension, to call for it, to summon it when necessary. And to know that material change is what we're after. 
And so, our customs are in our behaviors. We should take steps to be responsive to the needs of staff and their grievances. Thoughtful and inclusion, thoughtful and inclusive in our decision-making, accountable for our action as well as inaction, harm reductive, reconciliatory in our trespasses, celebratory of our wins and of our community, joyful in our steps. To trust data, yes, but also to value intuition and to know that there are different types of knowing that are valuable beyond the logic that the dominant culture teaches us to value above all else. In standing in these values and culture and custom, we hope to build work that is generative and leads to the change that we want to see in this organization. Now that our feet are firmly planted, let's move into the five areas of focus for reframing our foundation in racial equity. Each area will have subcategories, so follow closely. The first, I'm calling human relations, in the platonic way, of course. Essentially, it's HR, but I prefer language that feels warmer and speaks to the relational nature of the work that we engage in here. Under human relations, we want to give attention first to hiring, promotion, and retention. Much of this work we've already began. It seemed the most accessible and the most to-doable when we started our racial equity work. Uh, and some things are still in progress, and some things are still to come. Some of these things include listing salaries on our positions that we post, removing education requirements and really think about what would make a person a great candidate for a position, challenging the ideas of background checks and knowing the way the prison industrial complex works to keep people out of opportunities, blinding resumes, although that was a bit challenging and complex, we need to revisit that, um, make hiring people of color and individuals from the LGBTQIA community a hiring priority. Given ourselves to slow down the hiring process, pause or stop when the pool isn't diverse enough. We should consider where posting jobs through which websites, at which job fairs, and expanding beyond traditional networks and the networks of leadership, for instance. Asking staff of color and other community members about their networks, who they might be connected to, and how we might draw the attention of the candidates we want. When thinking about promotion, what comes up most is creating transparent pathways for vertical, and perhaps more accessibly in nonprofit organizations, horizontal growth. Thinking through, how are we acknowledging and honoring the skills that bridge gap between departments, 
bring added value to the company as well as its functions. And finally, in retention, once we get the people we want here, how are we supporting their growth? How are we supporting their breadth in the organization? Where are there opportunities for them to fellowship with staff, with guests, with each other? Should there be opportunities for mentorship as mentees or as mentors? What are their love languages? How can we ask what they are and how can we offer them support in the ways that they'll best receive it? And where are our professional development opportunities? We have a budget at Miriam's each year that staff have access to. Let's revisit it. Let's think about what we fund. Most importantly, let's think about how we seed power, share power with staff of color in the organization, as well as with our guests who are primarily people of color. And finally, let's think about how we share and how we seed power to our staff of color. As far as resource sharing goes, Staff here would like to see the start of a time bank where we're able to share PTO with staff who might need it more, such as caretakers or parents, single parents, uh, others who want to pursue learning and education or travel, whatever they might need. Staff also would like to see a professional development funds bank where we're able to donate some or all of our funds to other staff members who might use that money to pursue more learning, particularly around anti-racism training, or perhaps healing from systemic oppression. Our staff hasn't been big enough, really, to consider making one. Um, And since our racial equity work has taken off, I learned a good point from another colleague in this field that We know our systems are in place when we get more complaints, when people feel more empowered to name the things that harm them, right? And so we'll work with HR to develop progressive procedures for submitting grievances, for requesting facilitated conversations with an agreed on facilitator or team of facilitators having mediated conversations with perhaps an external mediator, and deciding how things move forward if those options are insufficient, for instance, through arbitration. We also want to give employees tools for resolving conflict that staff and managers alike. We want to think through corrective actions with theories around reconciliation and restorative justice in mind. How do we transform conflict in ways that deepen our relationships and our commitment to the work? Finally, staff would like to see longer paid family leave, more time to take care of our loved ones, more time to take care of our personal lives without having to worry about how am I going to survive this financially? The third category under human relations is conflict transformation. Up until this point, we haven't had any grievance policy in place. 
The second subcategory under human relations is compensation and resource sharing. We want to continue to conduct the pay audits we currently do, but to understand whether gaps exist by race and by gender, and to fill in those gaps. Research recommends conducting these audits in the quarter before a regular pay cycle increase or staff raises would occur, and keeping an equity reserve to top off any adjustments needed. We want to disaggregate pay data by race and gender again to conduct further analysis. One of the more interesting things in pay equity research right now for me is considering the emotional labor uh, that many direct service staff, often who are staff of color, put into their roles. And how do we include things like emotional labor and soft skills in job evaluations? How do we redesign our compensation practices to meet the strengths, the skills, the outputs of our staff? And don't replicate violent and abusive power dynamics in the larger society. The final subcategory under human relationships is staff engagement and wellness. We talked about creating a culture of feedback and responsiveness. How are we checking in with our staff? Could HR, for instance, conduct regular wellness checks? Could we submit surveys to staff throughout their tenure to check their satisfaction? And when people ultimately decide to leave, right, because our jobs is to work ourselves out of a job, we would let people select their own exit interviewer as opposed to what is currently in place uh, and, and selecting from a team of two in hopes that we can get honest and valuable feedback about the way things are working. We also considered that people might select from a pool of trainees or select anyone and provide a checklist for how the interview should be conducted. Our second area of focus is leadership. And one of the first things we would like to tackle is closing the race and gender equity gap in our leadership team. Listen to a few data points. Our organization is only about 17% white man. That's people who identify as white and cisgendered man. However, our four person However, our four-person leadership team is 75% white man. Our organization is about 62% made up of people who identify as women. However, only one person on the leadership team identifies as a woman. That's 25% for comparison's sake. We can celebrate, we've made a few strides when it comes to staff diversity. When I started in 2014, I was one of the only black people on staff. And now we have about 35% of the people who work here that identify as black. 
yet. Zero percent of our leadership team is made up of black people. Not one black person and only one identifies as a person of color. We would like to add at least two women to the leadership team as soon as possible. One of those women should be black. We like to work with management and leadership to figure out pathways to make this happen as soon as possible. We like to see more people of color in director and management positions. And we're committed to figuring out how to make this happen. The second thing we'd like to work on under leadership includes developing a guest advisory council. Local service organizations such as Bread for the City have developed client advisory councils to share power with community members and patrons and ask them to offer feedback and insight to help improve its programming, services, organization's impact, and its function. Staff engaged in racial equity and guest collaboration have named that MK, or Miriam's Kitchen, could further live out its values and better achieve its mission by creating such a council. We'll work in collaboration with our Agents of Change group, which we'll talk more about in another episode, and share power around decision-making with the people that we serve. Thirdly, we'd like to do more around board engagement. Our board members, to varying degrees, have been supportive of our racial equity work through approving our position, for instance, and celebrating our public stance on racism and homelessness. We've had two meetings or two points of context with our board related to racial equity, during which members explicitly express interest in further engagement and training. We are thinking through how we might offer racial equity training at a board retreat. We are looking at the Meyer Foundation and other sources of funds to send members to other trainings around the city. And thinking through activities such as commitment cards and helping each board member think through how they can individually commit to racial equity in their work and their lives and how they might show up to support Miriam's in our efforts. And finally, under leadership, we like to take steps to help managers understand the power differentials in supervisory relationships. The power differential refers to the enhanced amount of power that accompanies a position of authority within an organization, as well as in the context of white supremacy culture. We believe that a part of our work is helping managers become aware of this power and to use it with care and in ways that do not exploit or harm unintentionally or otherwise our staff. We seek to collaborate with HR to create trainings or to hire outside consultants to offer this guidance. Our third area of focus is short and sweet, 
admittedly, because I have a lot of learning to do around it, uh, but it's data. We consider data a powerful tool for tracking staff engagement, performance evaluations, compensation, like we talked about earlier, as well as satisfaction. We like to continue to disaggregate data by race to inform our practices. We're interested in learning from groups such as Data for Black Lives or organizations that use data for social change to figure out how we might use it in our racial equity work here. Our fourth major area of focus, and perhaps the most important, is centering people of color. Over the past three years, much of our work centered white folks. We strategized around how to convince leadership to take a stance on racial equity, on how to help our white staff learn about the connection between race and homelessness, and how we might engage in implicit bias strategy and anti-oppression reading groups to make sure our staff was moving along. We failed to think about the ways that racial equity affected people of color here, what their unique needs might be, what their interests were, and how we might center their perspectives in our strategy. We like to change that. As we mentioned earlier, we'd like to think through creating real pathways to leadership, a concern expressed by a staff member who left us recently. We want to make sure we address grievances when they come up. We've been slow to respond. We want to make sure there are spaces for people of color to fellowship outside of racial caucusing. We want to think about how we are including our staff of color in decision-making at every step of the way. We want to share, we want to seed power. And again, we want to think through how we evaluate, how we honor, how we uphold people and their gifts, including emotional labor, thinking through just compensation, and dare I say, thinking about our own brand of reparations and how Miriam's might model that work for other organizations. Our fifth and final major area of focus is collaboration and capacity. Right now, we're flirting with the idea of creating a floating department. It would consist of cross-departmental staff members who are interested in training and growing their awareness around racial equity from their seats in the organization. And after cycling through the department for, say, a six-month period, can then go back to their departments and do the work of further integrating it. Our advocacy department has a fellowship program in which people with lived experience are able to work as a part of the advocacy team 
for a termed amount of time. We could offer a similar type of fellowship in which we invite guests to help us shape culture and make decisions around our programming, our policy, and the things that we advocate for in this city. It could be a collaboration between our Agent of Change group as well as our Racial Equity Working Group, and it's still a work in progress. Setting and reframing this sort of foundation helps us to operationalize, or again, put into action our work in ways that are more sustainable and better supported. In the final section of this episode, we'll talk about the buckets of work that we have, many of which are already in progress, and others of which will come to fruition, all of which will be better off with the strong foundation we just laid out. So, more numbers for you. We've organized our work into six primary buckets for doing the actual work. The first is continuing to equip staff and leaders with tools to be agents of change from their seat in the organization. We seek to develop toolkits that will give people information around how to apply a racial equity lens to their decision-making when they're creating programming and policies. We want to continue to offer coaching and consultation to directors around key focus areas, including communications, and to continue to think through and offer training series, such as the Power Dynamics that we mentioned earlier in the episode. Our second bucket of work is prioritizing racial equity in our guiding documents, planning, policies, and data. We just wrapped up our strategic planning process, uh, which took place over a few months and got a good bit of racial equity language in there. I'm pretty proud of it. I'd also like to give a shout out to our chief HR person, Jessica, who's working really hard to get things like salary ranges listed on positions that we post. We also seek to think through how to add racial equity to our performance and evaluation reports. Third, we want to continue to develop and grow our common language and analysis around the link between racism and homelessness. We'll continue with staff education, including hosting our anti-oppression reading groups, offering training opportunities, and continuing with our racial caucuses. Fourth, we seek to commit to collaborating with guests and community members as stakeholders in this work. We want to share power and decision-making and have external conversations with volunteers, with donors, with other folks in the city that raise their consciousness and promote action. Fifth, we want to create material changes for the ways that people of color experience Miriam's Kitchen. I want to give a shout out to Deshaw for giving me that language that has resonated with me for so many months since then. We want to think through, again, fellowshipping opportunities and really grow our People of Color Caucus. 
as well as do a cultural analysis of Miriam's as an organization and find out how we might create a place where people of color feel included where they want to be. Finally, for our sixth bucket of work, we want to contribute to thought leadership around racial equity in the social service sector and in the city. And we want to be learning from people who are already doing this work, particularly organizations led by people of color. We will continue to participate in citywide racial equity cohorts. This includes the DC Initiative on Racial Equity in Government. And we want to do learning exchanges with other organizations. Another shout out to George Jones from Bread for the City, who is more than happy to talk about Bread's racial equity journey and has given uh, me a lot of resources around this work. Finally, as we wrap up this episode, I want to leave you with a point. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of going to a uh, certificate program at Georgetown. It was the nonprofit management executive certificate program. And one of the very first presenters said a thing that I loved. She said, don't pay back in charity that which is owed in justice. Let that sit with you. I hope you join us next time. Uh, Feel free to contact me with your questions. With your own work, I would love to feature you. Thank you so much. Take care.